Okay, tonight's first reading comes from Psalm 119, starting at verse 153 and going through to the end of the psalm. Consider my affliction and rescue me, for I have not forgotten your instruction. Defend my cause and redeem me. Give me life as you promised. Salvation is far from the wicked because they do not seek your statutes. Your compassions are many, Lord. Give me life according to your judgments. My persecutors and foes are many. I have not turned from your decrees. I have seen the disloyal and I feel disgust because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Lord, give me life according to your faithful love. The entirety of your word is truth and all your righteous judgments endure forever. Princes have persecuted me without cause, but my heart fears only your word. I rejoice over your promise like one who finds vast treasure. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your instruction. I praise you seven times a day for your righteous judgments. Abundant peace belongs to those who love your instruction. Nothing makes them stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation and carry out your commands. I obey your decrees and love them greatly. I obey your precepts and decrees for all my ways are before you. Lord, let my cry reach you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea reach you. Rescue me according to your promise. My lips pour out praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue sings about your promise, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your instruction is my delight. Let me live, and I will praise you. May your judgments help me. I wander like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commands. Our second reading tonight is from 1 Timothy, chapter 6, from verse 3 until the end of the letter, and can be found on page 1093 of the Church's Bibles. If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing, but has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarrelling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreements among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But you, man of God, run from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the faith. Take hold of eternal life that you were called to and have made a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, give us a good, uh, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep the command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
and the only one who has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. No one has seen or can see him. To him be honour and eternal might. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come, so that they may take hold of life that is real. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent, empty speech and contradictions from the knowledge that falsely bears that name. By, pro- by professing it, some people have deviated from the faith. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Uh, our Father, we come before you tonight longing to know you better, to love you more, to be more like our Saviour. We, we pray that you do a mighty work in this place. You know where we're at. You know what we need to hear. And so we humbly sit before you expecting you to speak. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. So I want to think about our identity and I want to think about our destiny. So your identity and your destiny will shape who you are today. So knowing who you are and knowing where you're heading, those two things are going to shape your choices, your decisions, your words, the way that you speak, your identity and your destiny, it really shapes your everyday. Let me give you an example. So the royalist in me, uh, let's take uh, Prince William. Now he knows who he is, doesn't he? Who is he? What's his identity? He's a prince. He is second in line to the throne. He is royalty and uh, his identity means there are things that he can do, things that he can't do, things that he must do, things that he must not do, even if he would like to do them. That's his identity. He is royalty. What's his destiny? Where's he heading? Heading for a throne? Heading for power? Heading for rule? And those two things, knowing who he is, knowing his future, they shape his today. Let me ask you, do you know your identity? If you're a Christian here tonight, if you love Jesus, do you know who you really are in Jesus. Do you know that you are a son of God? Do you know you're a daughter of God? Do you know that you're loved by God? Do you know that you're washed by Jesus? Do you know that you're clean and you're forgiven? Do you know that you're a, a co-heir with Christ? Now, who you are in Jesus, it shapes you, doesn't it? And there are things that you must do, things that you must not do, things that you can do, things that you can't do, because you're one with Christ. So that's your identity, but what about your destiny? Do you ever think about where you're heading? Do you ever think about your future? Do you ever think what life is going to be like for eternity? See, if you knew the future, you'd make different choices today, wouldn't you? If you were in New York on September 11th in 2001, you'd have made different choices on that morning. If you knew what was going to happen to the Malaysian airline that disappeared into thin air, you'd make different choices on that morning. If you knew the stock market was going to crash on Tuesday morning, you would make different choices with your stocks and shares tomorrow. When you know the future, it changes what you do and the way that you live. And I want to say to you, we know our future, don't we? We should know our future. 
If you're in Christ, if you're a child of God, if you're a son of God, a daughter of God, you know where you're heading. You know what the future is, don't you? We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. But we do know that he is going to come back. And so knowing that, knowing who you are, knowing where you're heading, it's got to shape you. You see, we as Christians are not just defined by an event at Calvary 2,000 years ago. So many evangelical Christians just focus so much on the cross, which is important, it's essential, but, but so is the return of Christ. So is the, the appearing of the great God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've got to live as people who are saved by the cross, but saved for heaven. Live godly lives now in light of eternity. See what Paul says? He brings the the return of Christ into this letter in verse 13. He says, In the presence of God, the one who gives life to all, he gives you your very breath. And of Christ Jesus, who has redeemed you and washed you. And of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate and said, I am the Messiah. Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, to keep keep the command without fault and failure until, what's the end point? What's the destiny? The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know when he will return, but God knows. God will bring this about in his own time because he is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. So let me ask you, how are you going at living a godly life now in light of your eternity? See, your godliness really matters. Paul's already told you that back in chapter 4. He said, chapter 4, verse 7, train yourself in godliness. The word there is you work hard at it, like training for a marathon. You put in the hard yards. You do your training. Not just physical training, but you train in your godliness. Because of verse 8 of chapter 4, that godliness is beneficial in every way, in this present life and in the, the uh, life to come. Now that makes sense to me, because if I'm heading for heaven then godliness is the only thing I can take with me. You ever thought about that? You can't take your Botox, you can't take your detox, you can't take your steroid-induced abs with you, you can't take your property, you can't take your car, you can't take your bank balance, but you can take your, your godliness. Someone said this, without personal godliness, the world to come will be like visiting a foreign place. You ever had that experience where you're visiting a foreign city, a foreign country, and you don't get the language, you don't get the culture, you just feel a complete stranger? I'm about to head on long service leave. Three weeks' time, I'll be on long service leave. We're going to Italy for part of it. Foreign language, foreign place. So what do you do? You prepare for it. I learn a bit of Italian, I learn a bit of Italian culture, so when I actually land in Italy, I'm not going to feel a complete and utter foreigner. Now you know where you're heading, you're heading for heaven. What's the language of heaven? Godliness? Worshipping God all your, all, all your days? What's the culture of heaven? Godliness? So how do you live now? A godly life as you prepare for eternity.
The king is coming. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He does not care about your possessions. He doesn't care about your postcode. He does not care about your job or your bank balance. But he does care about your, your godliness. That's what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 6, a famous verse. Some people were teaching that godliness was a way to material gain. Be godly and God will bless you with more money. And Paul says, that's rubbish. Godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain. When you pursue to live like your Savior, you pursue a godly life with contentment so you're satisfied in Jesus. You're content with who you are and where you're heading. That is great gain because you're preparing yourself for eternity. You're getting ready to go home. Now before we dive into chapter 6, let me be very clear. When I talk about godliness, I am not talking about a list of actions. You know, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. If you're striving for a godly life, it's all about ticking off a checklist. Then your Christian life will be one full of guilt and drudgery, and it will just be hard, hard, hard work. Godliness is your, it's your attitude, it's your demeanor, it's your Heart, it's your mind, it's your soul, it's your whole being, it's the choices that you make. Because godliness is not about activity, it's about a person. And his name is Jesus. Just flick back to chapter 3, verse 16. If you want to know what the mystery of godliness is, it's there. Chapter 3, verse 16. The mystery of godliness is great. He doesn't list your activities, he names a person. The mystery of godliness is Jesus, who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. It's really quite simple. <clears throat> if you want to grow in your godliness, then love Jesus more. If you want to become more like Jesus, if you want to love him more, serve him more, be more like him in your character, in your heart, and in your mind, then you will be living a godly life. The better you know Jesus, the more godly you become. I want to look at two areas. Firstly, your wealth. <clears throat> your money. And I choose that because that's the, the example that Paul gives in chapter 6. If you want a, a litmus test to see how you're going with your godliness, Paul says, okay, look at your gold. Look at your bank balance. Look at your attitude towards money. Godness and wealth. Let me read verses 17 to 19. To instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. He says, if you're wealthy and if you're a Christian, if you're rich and a Christian, think about your godliness. Now, the danger with these verses is that you read verse 17, you think, oh, well, that's not me. Oh, there are rich people in our church, but that's not me. I'm not rich. Can I humbly suggest that the vast, vast majority of us here today are rich? By the world standards, we are very wealthy. 
If you've got a, a shirt on your back and running water in your home, you're in the top 10% wealthy people in the world today. If you've got any money in your bank account, you're in the top 5%. We are rich. Now the combined income of postcode New South Wales 2088, that's Mossman. The annual income for the residents of Mossman is bigger than the most African nations. We are rich. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller has a chapter on greed, and he says that in his 20, 30, 40 years of pastoral ministry, people have come to him and they've confessed all kinds of sins. You know, sexual sins, pride, anxiety, lust. Not one single person has said, I really struggle with money. I think we've got a problem. We are rich, we're wealthy. So how do you be godly with your wealth? Paul gives you five ways. He says, uh, the godly attitude is, you can't take it with you. I can't take it with me. You see that in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Be cast, verse 7. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, the basic necessities, we we will be content with these. Paul says, have have an eternal perspective on who you are and your wealth. Uh, Go back to the cradle and go to the coffin. Come back to your birth. What did you bring into the world with you? What's the answer? Nothing. I was born naked and so was everybody here. Go, Go to your coffin, go to your funeral. What will you take out of this world with you? The answer is nothing. He quotes Job in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. We leave everything behind. There's a story of two gravestones a few hundred meters from each other in Egypt. One is a tiny gravestone of an American Yale graduate from one of the most wealthy families in the U.S., who met Jesus, loved Jesus, went on the mission field to Egypt, spent his days teaching about Jesus and was generous with his wealth, and he died with very little money. Tiny gravestone, he's now in eternity with his saviour. And a few hundred meters away is is the the tomb of Tutankhamun, with its gold coffins and gold chariots and a golden tomb. He was a wealthy man, but did he know Jesus? They both died, and they both left everything. Let me tell you, wealth is not all it's cracked up to be, because you can can take nothing out of this world with you. I found uh, John Stott's quote here really helpful. He says, Possessions are only the traveling luggage of time, not the stuff of eternity. So make sure you travel through life lightly. You ever seen those people at the airports lugging those massive suitcases? It looks like they've taken their whole house on holidays with them. That's what we do in life, isn't it? If you've ever moved house, you know. You lug all these boxes from one house to another and from one house to another. And then what happens? You die. What do you take out of this world with you? Nothing. It's just stuff. Oh, enjoy your stuff. 
Enjoy it, but don't find your security in it. He's supposed to say, they could take all this away. And verse 8, if I have food and if I have clothing, if I've got the basic necessities, food on my plate and clothes on my back and a roof over my head, I'll be content with these because my God has provided. That's the godly attitude. I can't take it with me. Secondly, your, your godly attitude is uh, beware of the dangers of loving money. And I find verses 9 to 10 very confronting. He says, those who want to be rich, who desire wealth, fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money itself, nothing wrong with money, it's the love of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. That lust for more and more and more and more money. They want to be rich, verse 9. Their identity is in their money. They love money, verse 10. It's an idol to them. They crave more of it. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The one who has much money is never satisfied with money. The one who loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is futile, says the teacher. I hope you know that that money is like a drug. The more you have, the more you want. It offers you so much. It offers you power and experience. And life is suddenly this menu and it's addictive. It's like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the more thirsty you become. See the words used in verse 9? A temptation, a, a trap, and a snare if you want. It's foolish, ruin, destruction, all kinds of evil. And they pierce themselves with many pains. I've watched it. I've watched people love money. And it controls you. You spend your whole life looking at the exchange rates and the stock markets and the best place to invest for your property and what are the mortgage rates doing? What about my superannuation? And your whole life revolves around your love of money. I've watched people be changed by the love of money. They become selfish. They become greedy. They become very envious. And I've watched people walk away from Christ because they love money. Bigger house, bigger car, nicer food, better education, and less and less and less time for Jesus. It's stagnant. I think we think we know better than the words of Jesus, don't we? What did Jesus say in the Gospels? He says, you cannot serve both God and money. But we arrogantly think that we can. What else did Jesus say? He said, it is hard, not impossible, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or do you remember the parable of the soils, that seed that was took root, but it was choked. What, what choked the seed? The worries of life and wealth. Please don't love money. If you've got it, enjoy it, but don't love it. That's my third point, that enjoy your money, but don't be arrogant, please. See that in verse 7? Verse 17, sorry. Instruct those who are rich, who are wealthy in the present age. That's us. Not to be arrogant. 
not to boast about their house or their holidays or their furniture or their fashion labels. Don't boast, don't be arrogant. Or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So wealth is a gift of God. If you've been blessed with wealth, if you've been blessed with money, enjoy it. But don't boast about it. And certainly don't put your hope in your wealth. I mean, the godly person realizes that you can go to bed wealthy and you can wake up the next morning poor. If you don't believe me, just wind the clock back a few years when the GFC hit. People who had lots, they lost it all. And again, the words of Jesus come to mind. You know the man in Luke chapter, chapter 12? As he got richer and richer and richer, what did the foolish man do? He built bigger and bigger and bigger barns. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, you, you fool, you idiot, storing up your treasures on earth, but nothing in heaven. So enjoy your money, but don't be arrogant. Enjoy your money and please be generous. See that in verse 18? Instruct them, that's the rich people, that's you and I. Instruct people with wealth to do what is good. To be rich or wealthy in good works. Isn't that beautiful? To be known more for your good works than for your wealth. To be known for your good deeds rather than your bank balance. To be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. If you really love God, then money becomes a vehicle for good works. If you love God, money becomes a vehicle for generosity and for sharing with others who do not have very much. I can we guess you get verse 18 engraved on our credit cards. It's more blessed to give than to receive, to be generous, to be willing to share. If you've never heard of Selena, Countess of Huntington, go home and Google her. Most extraordinary, wealthy but generous woman. She was a lady in England, wealthy family, and she loved Jesus. And she died almost penniless. She didn't squander her wealth at all. She was just wise with her wealth. So she used her wealth generously to to basically fund the buildings of over 100 Methodist chapels, churches in England, to fund the ministry of lots of Methodist ministers in England, to, to hold quite lavish dinner parties to invite the wealthy to come to her house so they could hear a gospel talk by a Whitfield or a Wesley. And one of the best stories I've heard is her selling her last pair of gold earrings to fund gospel ministry. A generous woman. Have you ever heard of J.D. Rockefeller? Of course you have. Uh, he said, I would never have learned to tithe my first million dollars if I hadn't learned to tithe, tithe my first paycheck of a dollar fifty. Someone at this church said to me, a, a businessman said, I, I want to earn more money so I can be more generous. It's a great statement. I looked at him and I said, well, how are you going at being generous with what God has currently given you? 
generosity does not just kick in when you have lots and lots and lots of money. It kicks in today. So use your money to invest for the future. Verse 19, you store up for yourselves a good reserve for the age to come. You, you store up treasures in heaven. And I don't think he's saying there that you can purchase your way into heaven. The treasures in heaven, the good reserve, are people. He's saying the way that you use your wealth, your personal goddess, will see other people saved for Jesus as you're generous, as you share. Other people see Jesus and hear about Jesus. And I'll give you radical examples of people who are radically generous. The businessman who funds different missionaries and different Bible colleges and different people and different ministers. And he sees lives change. There'll be many people in heaven because of the generosity of that one man. You see, your godliness really matters with your money. When Jesus Christ returns, he will not ask you, what was your postcode? He won't ask you, what was your bank balance? He won't ask you what your portfolio was. But he will be concerned about your godliness and the way that, that you have used what he has entrusted to you. And I'll be honest, this is a much bigger issue for me than for my wife. My wife is of the attitude, just give it away. I struggle. I grew up in a house with very little. And when you've got a bit, I reckon these verses are, are most confronting for the moderately wealthy. We've got a bit. We want just a bit more, don't we? So live godly lives now with your wealth in life of eternity. We looked at wealth. Let's finish up this letter by looking at wandering. See what he says in verse 10. Some have wandered from the faith because of their love of money. Isn't that tragic? People who sat in the chairs at church and worshipped Jesus, they've wandered from Jesus because they loved money. Some have shipwrecked their faith, says Paul back in chapter 1. They've shipwrecked their faith. They've given up on Jesus. And he ends the letter, chapter 6, verse 21. Some have deviated from the faith. They've wandered away from Jesus. And you know when we sing that song, Come Thou Fount, there's that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We're all prone to wander, aren't we? So what's going to stop you from wandering? What's going to help you to reach the finish line? What's going to help you to see Jesus face to face and still be loving and serving Jesus your Savior? I'll give you four words. They're all from verses 11 to 12. But you, man of God or woman of God, flee. That's the first word. Run from these things. Flee from the love of money. Flee from gossip. Run from slander. Run from false teaching. Run from the empty promises of this world. Run from the people who cause you to stumble. Run from the places that cause you to stumble. Whatever is your temptation, whatever is the, the stumbling block for you, run away. Have nothing to do with it. I think we're kind of foolishly arrogant. We think that we're stronger than we really are. If you walked into a field and you saw this ferocious bull who was coming towards you, you wouldn't stand there and think, oh, I can take him on. What would you do? Run? 
as fast as you can. Do a Usain Bolt out of there, quick. So Paul says here in verse 11, run from these things, flee. The things that might cause you to wander, the things that might cause you to stumble, just run away from them. Now you know what your particular temptation is, don't you? You know the thing that might cause you to wander. Well, get rid of it. Have nothing to do with it. Now the second word is there in verse 11, pursue. It's a great word, pursue. It says, go after that thing. Be so focused on it. Be determined to get it. You know, when I do marriage prep with people, I ask to share their story about how they met. And I love the stories where one of them has pursued the other, even when the other person wasn't interested. And here they are about to get married. And you hear the stories where, you know, he was so in love with her, but she didn't even notice him, and he he just pursued her. So he knew what flowers she wanted. He knew the restaurants that she loved to go. He found out her favorite perfume and her favorite, uh, I don't know, pop band, whatever it is. He pursued her, and he wooed her until she was his. And now read verse 11. We're to pursue righteousness. To chase after being found perfect in God. We're to pursue godliness. To chase after God's thoughts, God's goals, God's priorities for our life. We're to pursue faith. That growing understanding and love of Jesus. We're to pursue love. Selfless, sacrificial, other person-centered love. We're to pursue endurance, to persevere, to be steadfast in our faith. We're to pursue gentleness. That kind, gracious dealing with people. Pursue them, chase after them. And that's where the the illustration of of the husband pursuing his wife is quite helpful because who do you pursue to be righteous? Who do you pursue to be faithful? Who do you pursue to endure? You pursue a person, don't you? You pursue Jesus. The way that I have found really helpful to, to flee and to pursue is to journal. I don't know whether you ever journaled. But a nice booklet. And the end of each day, just turn off all your technology and sit with your God. And look back on your day and ask for forgiveness. And write down the things that you've done wrong, the things that you want to flee from. And then think about the character of God and what you've learned about God today and how he's changed you that day. And journal it and write it down. So you keep fleeing and you keep pursuing. Let me read a a section from Wilberforce's journal. I pursued godliness today. I was forgetful of God for a moment, so I'm sorry. I was too earthly-minded today. I had an attitude of inferiority to others. I, I wanted to be more thoughtful to my friend. My language improved today. There's a moment today when I just saw Jesus in all his glory, and my mind was lifted to heaven. That kind of stuff. Do you ever write that stuff down? They flee, 
pursue. The third word is fight. Verse 12, fight the good fight. <coughs> Such a, a juxtaposition in verse 11, isn't it? Pursue gentleness and then fight. It's not saying that you fight with your fists. He's saying you know, it's that battle for your godliness. It's that battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. You're in a fight. You wake up each day and you're fighting for the faith. You're fighting for truth. You're fighting for grace. You are surrounded. You're bombarded with voices telling you how to live. And not much of it is particularly godly. So fight. Learn to fight. And then take hold of eternal life. I love that bit. Take hold of eternal life. Grab hold of eternal life that you were called to. God has done it. God has taken hold of you. So make sure that you keep holding on to Jesus. Make sure that you finish the race. Because soon and very soon our King is coming. And we'll be with the one that we love. And with unveiled face we'll see him. And our souls will be satisfied soon and very soon. And so church, I'm urging you. I am pleading with you. Would you flee? Would you pursue? Would you fight? And would you take hold of life? Let me pray. Fight the good fight with all thy might. Christ is thy strength and Christ thy might. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way that you do strengthen us, the way you empower us to live a godly life. Forgive us, Father, for times where we haven't used our wealth wisely. Forgive us for times where we have been greedy. Forgive us, Father, for times when we found our identity or our security in wealth. Lord, I, I do commit to you every man and every woman in this building tonight. And pray that we would all be around the throne of our Savior in all eternity, praising you and worshiping you. Lord, would you protect each one person here that we would not wander, but we would finish the race. In Jesus' name, amen.